This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the latest in the series of LRB podcasts about British and American poetry, drawing on the rich archive of essays and reviews and memoirs of poets that have appeared over the years in the London Review of Books. The subject of our podcast today is the American poet Sylvia Plath. My name is Seamus Perry. I teach English literature at the University of Oxford, and I'm talking, as usual, with Mark Ford, poet, critic, and professor of English at University College London. Uh, But also, unusually, I'm pleased to say we are joined by Joanna Biggs, who is an editor at The Review and, most pertinently, the author of a long and absorbing piece about Plath that appeared in the paper in the last number for 2018. And we're going to uh, consider um, some examples of Plath's poetry uh, chronologically as as, as she moved from America uh, to England and had a, a second career, as it were, as a poet here. That's the way we've run most of our podcasts in this series, that is to say, biographically. Um, But for um, Plath, Mark, would you say uh, the biographical approach has its uh, weaknesses as well as its strengths? Yes. Part of the difficulty of discussing Plath is that feelings run very, very high. And um, from the the time that Ariel came out in 1965, there was um, extreme reactions to it. And on the one hand, people tend to or often read the poetry as somehow symptomatic of the problems that eventually drove Plath to take her own life in uh, 1963 when she was 30. And while one can't screen out the facts about Plath's life, it can distract one from the extraordinary innovations which she develops in her poetry and makes one lose track of the the, the poetic narrative, the way that she develops from this rather formal and controlled poet um, uh, who's experimenting with different kinds of 1950s, rather kind of, in in some ways, rather controlled and dry poems that connect with the ideals of the new criticism, which were prominent in that era, to a poet who got uh, infamously labelled confessional. It's not a very useful term, I don't think, because um, the poems aren't confessions. One can't read them as autobiography, but there are autobiographical details encoded in them. Uh, For instance, the reference to the seven years marriage in Daddy is the most famous example. It's clearly a reference to her own seven years with Ted Hughes, and one can't exclude that from one's understanding or reading of the poem. So I think the reader, uh, and we'll probably be exploring that uh, in this hour, is in a rather problematic position when reading Plath poems, to what extent uh, you are treating them as words on the page and construing them as you might construe a Tennyson poem, and to what extent you are connecting them with not only the biographical details that you know, but Plath's own mythologising of her life and the events in it and her relationship with Hughes and with her father. So that the kind of mythical strand is one which shades into the biographical strand in a way which is um, confusing, but also extremely kind of innovative 
creative and fertile and exciting in different ways. Yes, in her um, ex- extraordinary p- piece in the London Review of Books uh, about writing or not writing the life of Sylvia Plath, Jacqueline Rose s- s- says how biography loves Sylvia Plath. That's her phrase. So um, mindful that we mustn't uh, love biography too much, but nor must we forget it. Um, let's start by thinking about her early years as uh, as she um, developed into the person who wrote those early kind of more formal poems that, that you just referred to, Mark. We'll have a look at a couple of those in, in a moment. Uh, Joe, can you tell us something about her, um, her background, her upbringing, her first years, what uh, saw her through to that place at Smith College? Yeah, so she was born on the 27th of October, 1932. The 27th of October was... Um, I mean, everyone remembers their birthday, but for Plath it was a thing. We have a poem for a birthday. We have lots of things written on her birthday in a particular way. And she grew up in this... She was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and that area, again, um, the way it connects to the universities, her desire to um, to study at... Has, you know, goes on to get the scholarship at Smith and then goes to study at Cambridge. Her mother taught at the university. There's a kind of academic and a real... A valuing of all those academic qualities, really wanting, really ambitious to do well and very self-punishing, I think, on not keeping up a, the exact sort of um, a trajectory she thinks she should have kept up at points. And also the the landscape of that area. I was thinking as well of the beaches. Norsic Beach comes up in Daddy. There's this whole, she lives, goes back to Boston when she's grown up. She keeps coming back to Smith. Um, all of that's really important to her. Um, her father dies when she's eight. And she's famously, her mother famously reported that she said, well, I'll never talk to God again. And she was sort of a febrile, sort of very self-critical sort of teenager, wanting everything, wanting sex, wanting men, wanting, you know, when she, in her teenage years, she's just hungry for experience and hungry for, to write really good poems, live well and do it in good sentences. That's what she says in her journal. Um, so that's the sort of person we're dealing with. I, th- I think the New England aspect of it is one that that is really interesting, and in that especially the traditions of New England introspection, which sort of date back to the transcendentalists and Emerson and Thoreau, and the extent to which the Puritan tradition, in which which still I think can can be seen as kind of um, having some effect on the ways in which Plath considers interiority, meant this rigorous self-examination was somehow that was the way to God. She said she wouldn't speak to God, but for all the nineteenth century transcendentalists and New England divines, that kind of self-examination was a kind of crucial notion of the development of selfhood, ideally a selfhood that becomes religious and goes to heaven, not the case with Plath. But I think it's worth connecting her to that particular link with New England. And of course, uh, a link which was predominantly male, that the the women in that tradition were figured as witches quite often. And in terms of the biographical aspect, there is a a kind of strand which has, has... uh, figures the, the the extent to which Plath's work is can be read as a kind of curse or is somehow uh, uh, an encha- uh, 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 or as a, yes as a, as a curse or a bewitchment as, as somehow connecting to that particular strand of of American um, uh, history. Yes, and, and the New England um, philosophers like Emerson, as you say, um, constantly return to this idea that the, the, the nature you perceive depends upon the eye with which you perceive nature. Um, so it's not, it's not a pure subjectivism, but, but it, there is a real nature out there too. But at the same time, the kinds of things that you perceive are always going to be um, mediated or somehow screened or, or filtered through the, the lens of your, of your own selfhood. And, 
and that, in a way, could be the motto of lots and lots of Plath poems. I think that's the template of the Plath poem, a kind of landscape that then gets filled with subjective elements that presented in a kind of extreme or expressionist form. And that, again, you're kind of blending her own selfhood with what she's observing. I think that's a helpful way to think about the confessional aspect too, or the, the thing that we're sort of a bit mistrustful of, of when these kind of moments in my life appear what happens to them what does she do to them how do they become poetic how do they become mythic that's the thing that well, when I was reading the poems I'd find you know a vase of cornflowers and poppies and they would appear in a poem but it didn't really it doesn't help with a doesn't help sometimes it's more of a mystery but the fact less. that you connect them is is interesting because that that sort of is linking with the rose diagnosis of our biographical kind of um, yeah. obsession or hunger with kind of details of Plath's life, um, and it, it is it is unlike the case of I think almost any other poet except perhaps T. S. Eliot. There's there's a similar kind of appetite for f- finding out about the Eliot Vivian relationship as there is that of the Hughes Plath relationship, and um, it magnetizes us for various ways or readers and has done for, for kind of decades now. And um, maybe there's nothing more you can say about them it then that's the way it is i think one of you is keener to use biography than the other anyway (laughs) with that we shall proceed so here we are we've got this extraordinarily high achieving young woman full of ambition um the kind of personality who as joe says in her piece had to be good at everything um and one of the things that she sets out to be good at is to be a poet in as as mark was saying in his earlier remarks um very much in the school of 1950s um formal poetry formless minded poetry could you say something a little bit about that academic culture mark and maybe give us an example of the sorts of poem that she was writing Yes, um, uh, American poetry in the 50s was very much dominated by the ideals of what were called the new critics, um, Cleance Brooks, Robert Penn Warren, Alan Tate, and poetry had moved into the universities as well. I think that's the kind of crucial point to make, that rather than being wild bohemians, most of the poets were working as you know, teachers of poetry and even the wild ones like Lowell and Berryman uh, who behaved appallingly when they did get these university jobs were kind of, you know, were kept on however badly they behaved because they were kind of stars and it was good for the faculty. Um, and so Plath grew up um, at Smith, which was a very high achieving college uh, and was a high achiever, although she also had problems while she was there, including her suicide attempt, uh, her first one. Uh, but she started up writing these rather formal poems, which... Um, nod very often to W.H. Auden in particular. Uh, one I wanted to look at was a little kind of rondo. It's called Bluebeard. Uh, and I'm, I've never met anyone who's sort of mentioned it or I've never come across it in any criticism. But reading through the juvenilia, this seemed to me a poem that uh, captures some of the later Plath's um, ability to combine myth with repetition in a kind of hypnotic, rather haunting way. I'll just read it since people are unlikely to be familiar with this little poem. Bluebeard. I am sending back the key that let me into Bluebeard's study because he would make love to me. I am sending back the key. In his eyes darkroom I can see my x-rayed heart dissected body. I am sending back the key that let me into Bluebeard's study. Thanks for listening to this extract from series one of Modernish Poets. To listen to the full series and to all our other close reading series, sign up at lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link below. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.